Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me here on the Biography Channel of the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. I'm your host, Dan Hill, and I'm joined today by Ed G. Longacre. He is the author of Unsung Hero of Gettysburg, the story of Union General David McMurtry Gregg. The publisher is the University of Nebraska Press. Ed is a retired historian for the U.S. Department of Defense and the award-winning author of numerous books on the Civil War, including books on sharpshooters as well as the Battle of Bull Run. Today's episode is entitled Opposites Attract, David Gregg and George Custer. Welcome to the show, Ed. Thank you, Dan. Glad to be here. Uh, I, as a boy, had a poster up on just above my bed with all the battles of the Civil War. So this is a topic uh, near and dear to my heart, so I'm really curious to see what you'll tell us. Uh, maybe start, if you don't mind, with a brief overview of the book. The book is a first full-length biography of a general from Pennsylvania who played a critical role on the third day at Gettysburg, the critical battle of the Civil War. A general, at the time, Brigadier General David McMurtry Gregg of Huntingdon, Pennsylvania, who uh, was truly an unsung hero of the battle in that he never got much recognition for what he did then or later, even though he was one of the most uh, effective and uh, experienced cavalry commanders in the main Union Army in the Eastern Theater, the Army of the Potomac. He ended the war as a brevet, that is an honorary two-star general, but it took him a long time to achieve the rank, position, and authority that his services actually entitled him to. He served almost through the end of the war, but ended up resigning his commission from the Army on the eve of the Appomattox campaign. And because he was not available in the climactic campaign of the war, another reason he was probably cost uh, the notoriety, the attention that he should have gotten both then and in later years. Okay, so we're going we're to delve into to him in just a moment. If you don't mind, I'm going to start with you. We just had a chat here before starting the segment, and I learned that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in the Department of Defense, you were actually in the Air Force, an Air Force historian, uh, and you're writing about the Civil War. So it would seem to be a disconnect, but probably not. Can you tell me where the continuity is and how you got interested in the Civil War? Actually, it was kind of a nice mix, writing uh, Air Force history by day and Civil War history at night for for many, many years. Uh, The material that I wrote for the Air Force, a lot of it when I was stationed as a staff historian, that is a civilian historian at Headquarters Strategic Air Command in Nebraska, was mostly classified top secret. A very, very limited audience, where it made me feel that at least I was reaching a wider readership when I wrote about the Civil War. It really wasn't too much of a disconnect. In fact, the the fact that they were so different and disparate kind of helped me. And uh, each time I I wrote one or the other, I started almost afresh, it seemed like. And I enjoyed enjoyed the mix. Well, sometimes when I... Yeah, when when I think about the the Air Force, I mean they are carrying you know uh, crossing long, long distances quickly up in the air, but cavalry people also uh, move quickly. So I saw some possible continuity there. But uh, leaving that aside, I was really fascinated with a bit of your 
background history, uh, especially your time at William and Mary and your family's connection back to that college and the Civil War. Uh, so I, I think it's worth repeating because it's really quite fascinating. Sure. Um, I'd always wanted to write since I was seven years old. I remember that year I started writing a little story. And uh, I, I finally decided what my subject was going to be when I was in 11th grade in high school in, in southern New Jersey, right near Philadelphia. I found some books in the attic of my home one day that had been taken from the home of the mayor of Williamsburg, Virginia in 1862 and 63, because that was written inside the flyleaf. Turned out it was written by my great-grandfather, who was a sergeant and in the Pennsylvania Cavalry Regiment that occupied Williamsburg for about half the war. Uh, I assumed that he had stolen those books. It turned out later that they were actually gathered up after the Yankees came through and destroyed everything of value in the town, including this particular house they came from, which is still standing as part of Colonial Williamsburg, and were given up to the quartermasters of the occupying regiment. My great-grandfather was a quartermaster sergeant. The idea was these books were to be returned to the rightful owners after the war, but none had ever been recovered until I decided to take those books down to Williamsburg on my first visit there years ago, donated them to Colonial Williamsburg. They now have them in a little library in the town. They went through the war in my great-grandfather's saddlebags, but now anybody can read them. Uh, but that's how I got interested in Civil War, uh, because when I found out I had a blood ancestor in the war, it all started to come to life for me, and I started reading about his regiment, and then cavalry in general, then the war in general. Anyway, that's how I got to be, I assume, where I am now. Okay, but you also have some stories about William and Mary, because uh, that was the last of your connections with the town of Williamsburg. That's right. My great-grandfather's camp was right outside the town of Williamsburg, and uh, the local people there, the local uh, Southerners, would conspire with Confederate guerrilla troops on the Virginia Peninsula to attack that camp. They attacked them several times. On one occasion, they captured 100 officers and men of my great-grandfather's regiment and carted them off to prisons in Richmond. The rest of the regiment, presumably including great-granddad, decided to get even by destroying the big landmark of the town, which was a, a real treasure to the people of Williamsburg. And that was the College of William and Mary, where Thomas Jefferson and other early grades had gone to school. And they set fire to several of the campus buildings and then took out their sabers and prevented the townspeople from putting out the fire until the buildings were destroyed. Uh, before I came to live in Virginia in 92, I took a trip down to Colonial Williamsburg, got a tour of uh, a number of places, including the campus. The campus tour took us to one of the old buildings and uh, on uh, on the campus of William and Mary, and the guide whom I had told early on that my great-grandfather had been in occupation of the town, gave me a dirty look and said, these scorch march date from 1862 when a regiment of Yankee cavalry from Philadelphia tried to burn down William and Mary. You can imagine uh, how bad I felt about that. But the real kicker of the story is, uh, when I came to live here in 92, they were looking for an adjunct professor of history to teach U.S. military history to ROTC students and uh, more uh, uh, other graduates or other students, too. And I had to interview for the job, which I applied for with uh, 
a uh, the, the department chairman whose name was Yule, uh, a woman, and I asked her if she might be related to Colonel Benjamin Yule, the Confederate officer who during the war was the president of William and Mary. Turned out she was related. So I was trying to get a job from a woman whose <laughs> ancestor had lost his school since my ancestor torched it. I got the job anyway. I guess maybe the late unpleasantness is truly behind us finally. Okay. Well, and, and I have a bit of a connection to William Mary because a good friend of mine named Abby Johnson, her father taught Civil War history, uh, Ludwell Johnson, at the college and all, always referred to it as the War of Northern Aggression and was not a big, fa- not a big fan of Lincoln, shall we say. Well, still there? I'm still there. My screen just went blank. Uh, uh, strangely enough, even though I have this one ancestor in the Union Cavalry, most of my Civil War ancestors, and there's a number of them, are Confederates. Uh, a branch of my family settled in Missouri before the war, became good Confederates, and most of them in the Cavalry. Also, two Longacres fought in the 11th Virginia Cavalry under Jeb Stewart. Another ancestor was the colonel of the 2nd Arkansas Mounted Rifles. And I usually hesitate to mention this, but another ancestor, Charles Longacre, was a charter member of Quantrill's Raiders. Ah, yes. You you would have you would have civil war running deep in your veins, yes. And cavalry. <laughs> yes, and cavalry, most definitely. That's right. So so let's let's go over here to uh, General David McMurty Gregg. Seems to me that you really had your your work cut out for you because this is someone who uh, was uh, quite you know reserved. Uh, you describe at one point that he lived within an invisible circle, not very given to exuberance. In fact, not at all. Uh, probably a hard nut to crack. So what was it like trying to write a biography about this guy? It was difficult except for one thing. Greg's son, David Jr., had written a small biography, uh, unpublished biography of his father's life, which gave some family details I couldn't have gotten elsewhere. Uh, I found out, for instance, that Greg's uh, early years were, were pretty tragic because his father died when Greg was 12. His mother died when he was 14. Three of his eight siblings had died by the time he was 18, including a beloved older brother who died in his arms from tuberculosis. I think the multiple tragedies turned him inward, made him conceal his emotions and protect his privacy, and that lasted through the rest of his life. And it colored his military experiences and also affected his view uh, in history by historians afterwards. Uh, There was an anecdote about him at West Point. He graduated from the class of 1855 where a uh, Hale fellow cadet came up behind him, slipped up behind him on one occasion and clapped him on the back. Supposedly, Greg wheeled around and with through clenched teeth said, if you do that again, I'll knock you down. Uh, He preserved his privacy throughout. And during the war, when his cavalry colleagues, such as George Custer, were out to win as much renown as they could through their own efforts at promotion, Greg allowed his uh, uh, performance rather than his personality to color his actions. And that pretty much stands as as his most notable trait. Okay, and let's talk about his most notable accomplishment. So that moves us to Gettysburg, and uh, basically, you know, this is the title of your book, The Unsung Hero of Gettysburg. So what did he contribute in the Battle of Gettysburg? Let's just go right to that. 
Uh, he got to the battlefield with his division of about 2,400 men on the second day of the battle. And his men fought Confederate infantry at, and at one point prevented an entire brigade of Virginia troops from taking part in a critical battle on Culp's Hill which uh, fell just short of success, perhaps through Gregg's efforts. But on the third day was when he, he, uh, he shone, because that was a day when General Jeb Stuart was leading about 4,000 Confederate cavalry toward the right flank and rear of the uh, Army of the Potomac, three and a half miles away from the main battlefield. Uh, as most people who know anything about Gettysburg know, uh, or uh, in the midday on, on July the 3rd, the front, the, the uh, front part of the Confederate of the Union line was attacked by General George Pickett and what was known as Pickett's Charge. Even though there has not been established a close connection, it's long been thought that Stewart's job was to attack from the rear at the same time as Pickett struck, struck from the front to cause confusion in the Union ranks and prevent an effective defense of the Union position on Cemetery Ridge. Gregg had had his troops reduced because one of his three brigades had been sent to the far Union rear to guard communications. Two of the regiments of one of his remaining brigades were detached from him and sent elsewhere in the battle. And for a, a part of the day, his third brigade wasn't on the field at all. So he was down to a skeleton force, basically, facing maybe three times as many Confederate cavalry coming in from the rear. He knew he had to stop Stuart from striking uh, the Union. Uh, Union line. And the only way he was able to do this was he was able to commandeer from another division commander a brigade of Michigan cavalry, four regiments under just promoted Brigadier General George Armstrong Custer. Custer's men, added to Gregg's, gave him still fewer troops than Stuart had, but just enough to hold Stuart back in several hours of fighting. And by day's end, Stuart had been unable to break through uh, Gregg's line because Gregg directed all aspects of the battle, including Custer's men. And that prevented what could have been disaster to the Union defensive effort on the, uh, on the major day, the critical day of the battle. Because the fighting took place three and a half miles from the main battlefield, uh, what took place in Gregg's sector was largely overlooked, and not only at the time, but also by historians over the years. When, uh, as an undergraduate in the 60s, I started researching the Confederate or the, the cavalry operations at Gettysburg, I found out that cavalry battlefield was not even a part of the normal tour of the field. It took years before they actually incorporated it into the tour. So not only Greg, but the battle in the uh, Union rear was overlooked and its participants unsung for many, many years. 
Well, and while Greg might not have objected based on his personality, certainly the flamboyant George Custer would have. Um, and and uh, you mentioned to me when we talked before and we chose to title the episodes we did uh, Opposites Attract because you said even though they had entirely different personalities, they apparently got along quite well. Is that, that true? That's true. Greg being old school, very gentlemanly, very quiet, uh, very undemonstrative. Uh, Custer was pretty much the opposite. Everything Custer did attracted attention, and he went out of his way to provide it. For instance, he would dress in an outlandish uniform that one of his colleagues said made him look like a circus rider gone mad, including <laughs> black velveteen uh, uniforms and pants. And on the surface, it made him look like nothing more than a military fop, but he actually had uh, a good reason for dressing that way, because that distinctive uniform was clearly, clearly seen by his troops, even in the midst of battle. They knew where he was at every point. They knew they could rattle, rally around him when necessary. But yes, Custer, like a lot of other cavalry chieftains, including Stuart and Philip Sheridan, Judson Kilpatrick, he went to great lengths to promote himself, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for selfish ones. Greg would never have done that. Greg is famous for having told one of his subordinates, I do not propose to have a picture reputation. So uh, his determination to advance through performance rather than personality uh, makes him very unusual, and it's it's not uh, surprising that his uh, career was overlooked by historians. Uh, <laughs> in a sense, he was responsible for his own anonymity. Sure. And uh, Custer, of course, wanted the exact opposite. If I've read correctly, he was planning after the Battle of, uh, you know, out in Montana, uh, Custer's last stand, he was actually planning to run for president and wanted one last victory. I, I know a bit about Custer because my family's from North Dakota. And of course, uh, as the billboards joke, he was alive when he left the place uh, from, from Fort Lincoln to go west, Montana. Not, not, so, that, not that it matters. I don't agree with that idea about him. He may have wanted to be president, but I think that view of him has been kind of discredited, actually. Ah, okay. uh, I just finished the second volume of a trilogy I'm writing about Custer. And then at some point, I'm going to have to embark on the story of him as an Indian fighter, a subject I've never tackled before. So I'll be studying him right up the little big one for the next few years. Okay. Well, maybe I'll, I'll see you there. I, I've been to the battle site once, and I, I have an interest in returning there. I didn't have a lot of time that day. So I, I wanted to ask you a question because you, you've mentioned uh, some other flamboyant people who were cavalrymen, and it does seem to me that that way. There's, you know, We haven't even gotten around to uh, Nathan Bedford Forrester, for instance, but you have some really strong personalities probably across the general ranks and so forth, the leadership ranks. But uh, the Calvary people seem to be quite flamboyant. So it seems odd to me, I have to confess as an outsider, that, that Greg would be a Calvary man as opposed to uh, in charge of infantry or something else. Well, the fact that he was in cavalry did seem like a case of a duck out of water. And it hurt him because so many of his colleagues who were perhaps of lesser abilities, and lesser experience, achieved more than he did, especially early in the war. They became colonels, they became generals months before he ever got to 
uh, hold those ranks. Sometimes it was a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. When the war began, Greg was stationed in far off California, where some of the colleagues and, and fellow cadets of his who never who never finished as high on the honor roll as he happened to be in the East in Virginia, and they had a chance for early distinction. And he didn't. When he got finally to Virginia in September of 61, uh, the first major battle of the war was over. Some of his friends, and as I said, fellow cadets had done well there, were on their way to high rank and promotion and authority. And he had to serve as a lowly captain for the first several months of the war, a captain of the regular army. And he did not become a colonel of volunteers, that is the army that was formed just to fight the war, until January of 1862. Uh, from there, it was still a low slog before he got really high rank. He did not get to become a brigadier general until January of 63, and a division commander until a few months after that. At war's end, he probably should have commanded all the cavalry of the Army of the Potomac because of all the highest ranking division commanders in the cavalry. He was the one with the most experience. Uh, there were three divisions of cavalry when Ulysses Grant came east to take over operations in Virginia in the spring of 64. Two of them didn't have cavalry experience at all. One was a transferred infantry commander. One was a, an engineer officer with no field experience whatsoever. So theoretically, Greg, because of his background and his uh, experience, should have moved up to command, but he didn't. When uh, Grant came east, he brought with him a favorite subordinate from Tennessee, Major General Philip Sheridan. Sheridan had commanded both infantry and horsemen under Grant in the West, and he installed him as the commander of the Cavalry Army of the Potomac instead of uh, Gregg. He was well aware of Gregg's sterling record in division command, but he wanted somebody well known to him and somebody he considered very trustworthy. So he put Sheridan over Gregg. And here is another example of two very distinctively different personalities because sort of like Custer, Gregg, uh, excuse me, Sheridan was boisterous, loud. Uh, everything he did was... Uh, Kind of uh, for, yeah, he, for he, 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 cut, he cut a figure, yeah. Yeah, he did, and uh, uh, a lot of historians think that Greg and uh, Sheridan never got along. But according to Greg's son, there was never any animosity between the two of them. Uh, I think they actually, despite their different personalities, uh, cooperated very well. Now, is this because uh, he kind of got overshadowed once Grant came east? Is that why you think maybe he he uh, departed from the Civil War not so long before it ended? Well, there's a lot of possible reasons why, because Greg never explained himself except to say that he needed to go home because of family affairs, uh, probably financial affairs, because I think his family was in financial straits during the war. He had used the same... Uh, reason for taking leave on three or four other occasions early in the earlier in the war. So it makes some sense, but most historians don't believe that was the reason. Uh, there are a couple of possibilities. Uh, one was that 
he was overheard talking to one of his subordinates a few weeks before he resigned his commission that he had lost his nerve, that he couldn't take it anymore. Although he had been so obviously brave and courageous on so many battlefields, he had truly impressed his men with his courage. But he claimed that uh, he had come to the end of his tether. And it reminded me of something. I don't know if you've ever seen that World War II movie, 12 O'Clock High with Gregory Peck. Uh, yes, I have. Not not recently, but yes, I have. Well, Craig uh, Peck plays a hard-bitten and steel-nerved brigadier general, group commander in the U.S. Army Air Forces, who always accompanies his men on every bombing mission. But at one point, he can't force himself physically to get up into the cockpit of his B-17. He has reached the end of his endurance, his physical strength, even though he's a brave man. And I thought maybe that was what happened to Greg, but I rejected the idea uh, for, for different reasons, and I came up uh, with another possible reason. A month before, excuse me, two months before he resigned, he was involved in an expedition with both infantry and cavalry from Petersburg, where the uh, Army of the Potomac had been besieging Lee's army, on an expedition from Petersburg south toward the North Carolina line. This was in as I said, December, very bad weather. And for the first time in the war, Greg experienced the effects of military atrocities. He found several uh, Union soldiers who had straggled and been captured, killed, and mutilated. He also, also learned that some Union infantry had taken revenge by capturing local Southern civilians and shooting and hanging some of them. And as an old school type, a gentlemanly type, I wonder if he was not sure he could finish out a war like that and still maintain uh, his sense of honor and self-respect. I mean, the war had never been a, a, an exercise in the manly arts, but up until that time, late 64, uh, they had, had always observed some distinctions some boundaries. But by this point in the conflict, it seemed like the line between official or semi-official killing and killing for its own sake may have blurred to the point where it didn't make sense to Greg anymore. There was another reason, too. When he went home on leave at Christmas, two months before he resigned, supposedly his wife was appalled to find a bullet hole in his hat. Uh, sure. <laughs> she had been trying to get him to take a desk job rather than a field command early in the war. So I'm sure that had something to do with it, too. No, no, that all makes sense. Uh, before we end here, I just had one last question. I'm always interested in personalities, and we spent some time talking about uh, Custer and Sheridan versus Greg. If we went more broadly, and I may be completely out of bounds here, but I'm just curious from your vantage point, certainly more informed than mine, if you think different personality types, given a choice, and a lot of things in life happen by happenstance, but, you know, infantry versus Air Force versus Marines, Navy, do you think you get different kinds of, of leaders and even soldiers in those different parts of the military? In other words, personalities, how they... Uh, yeah, yeah, they they draw into a different theater of, of possible warfare based on their personality types. Is that just possible to any degree? I will say the cavalry seem to uh, favor certain personalities, or uh, conversely, personalities were formed by being in the cavalry uh, for a couple of reasons, mainly because of the mobility involved. 
uh, because they led hell for leather charges against the enemy, where they had to be able to uh, consolidate the spirit, the morale of their men to actually follow them into, into that kind of a fight. And there's another reason, too. Cavalry had a degree of independence that no other arm of the service did because they often served apart from the main army. That led to commanders being able to do more on their own to do what they wanted to do, regardless of what their orders from the top were. And I think that fostered a uh, personality of um, taking charge and uh, doing pretty much what they thought needed to be done, be done regardless of what the high command thought. And I think that fostered a kind of a personality. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I want to thank you, Ed, so much for being my guest today. This has been uh, the biography channel of the New Books Network. Uh, the episode Opposites Attract, David Gregg and George Custer. Uh, my guest is Ed Longacre. He is the author of Unsung Hero of Gettysburg, the story of Union General David McMurty Gregg. Uh, if you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes or to check out other episodes, you can visit my company's website at www.sensorylogic.com or go to the New Books Network and they have the biography channel there. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Ed. And and uh, that's it. Dan, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thank you.